Turn with me into your New Testament. We've spent months and months and months and months and months since January in the Old Testament. So if you know how to get to the New Testament, go there now. If not, let me show you. If you have a Bible, open it up and you're going to notice there's a left side. The Old Testament's on the left side. On the right side is the New Testament. We're going to go towards the very end of it. For the next two months, all of October and all of November, we're going to be in one short letter, four chapters, Paul's letter to the Colossians. So how do we find that? We open up our Bibles, and you're going to notice it's right towards the end. So just look for that now. We're going to today introduce it, and so what we're going to do is we're going to do a couple things. We're going to start by seeing the first two verses and how the first two verses are really going to show us a number of things. They're going to show us our genre, our author, our audience, our context, and the gospel. And once we get those first two verses, they're going to get us really set for the entire fall as we're coming in to this new book. Now, if you have read Paul's letters before, you will notice details that are very familiar. And if you haven't, we're so glad you're here. And we're going to really slow down two verses Go verse by verse for the two verses. Then we're going to answer the question, what's the best way to hold the steering wheel? And we're going to talk about the way to live in life as we put our sermon up on the screen. And we're going to look at this opportunity. So I want to start just by reading a little bit. In the first verse, you're going to see it starts like this. So if you're with me, we're going to read through together. What I'm going to do is each time we get to something key, we're going to pause, we're going to stop, we're going to see what it means, because this is going to get us a bearing for the entire series. This letter, okay, let's stop there. This letter, there's two main types of letters that we see in the New Testament. There's something called a personal letter and a circular letter. A personal letter is if I'm writing a letter to Tom, dear Tom, blah, 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 love David. A circular letter, sometimes in our society we think of that as an open letter. For example, dear town of Plymouth, or to who it may concern, I feel strongly on blank issue. Sincerely, David. This letter to the Colossians, you're going to see, has elements of both. It's going to be written directly, personally to a church, but at the end it's going to talk about how it can be distributed to other churches and to other people. And so you're going to see that this letter, yes, it's written to a specific group, but it's for us as well, and it has implications for us. So this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God. Let's talk briefly about Paul. Paul starts off as this guy named Saul. Who is Saul? He is a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? A religious Jewish leader in the first century. Saul loves his rules and he's got Roman citizenship. So he's really got this interesting backstory. What we see with our friend Paul, his name is Saul. He's going on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, and he gets blinded by a light, and Jesus essentially says this, Hi, Paul, you're doing bad stuff. You need to turn to me, and you can do awesome stuff for me. Let's turn your life around. He does. It's a really abbreviated way to look at Paul's call, but he becomes Paul, and now he has an opportunity to do great things for Jesus. So what does he do? You'll see in a moment. Now, something we should know about our friend Paul, he's chosen by the will of God, and he's sitting in jail. Probably, and we'll talk about what this means, the 
academic and historian N.T. Wright says probably Ephesus. We'll show you a map in a little bit what that means. So this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, stop there. We just use a church word, apostle. Have you ever heard this word apostle before? Okay, it's one of those words that we use, apostle, apostle, apostle. We've got Paul the apostle, Barnabas maybe an apostle, the apostle Junia, a female apostle, the 12 apostles. Sometimes we say, hey, I'm part of an apostolic ministry. And we don't know what it means. So let's make it clear. An apostle is a person who's sent. And I want to make it super clear with superheroes. Imagine that an apostle is like a superhero. An apostle has an origin story. So think of Spider-Man. Spider-Man is Peter Parker, and he's this normal kid with an origin story. You with me? He grows up in high school. He can't play basketball. He feels weird about girls in life. Are you with me? So there's Peter Parker. He gets bit by a what? A radioactive spider. Okay, so now he has this origin, and he's got powers. So a superhero starts with an origin, has powers, then goes on a mission and makes an impact. So what's his mission? He fights Green Goblin and others. His impact is he saves the city, joins S.H.I.E.L.D., etc., etc., etc. I don't need to digress. So an apostle is a person like Paul. He has an origin. He starts off in a normal place. He has not powers, but a divine call and spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about that over the next couple months, what those things mean. Then he has a Mission. What's his mission? He does a series of missionary journeys. So he goes from here to here and plants churches. And he goes from here to here and plants churches. He goes from here to here and plants churches. He even ends up in jail. And in jail, he's doing the mission, and it makes an impact. So that's what an apostle is. So we're, we're doing well. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother. Okay, we need to stop on our brother. So Jesus redefines family. Some of the things we need to know as we go into this new series is we look at the Bible with our cultural lens. Imagine that you're wearing glasses, whether you are or not, and this is your culture. And we put it on, and now we're interpreting the Scripture, understanding life in 2023 in America, in New England, as probably Patriots fans, and we're looking at culture. So we need to understand not what our culture says about things like brother or family, what does Jesus say? He makes it very clear. Jesus says this, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, my mother, my family. So when you're seeing our brother, he's not necessarily talking about a blood brother. He's talking about another Christian. So that's this guy, Timothy. Now, we'll keep this one short, but you're going to notice Paul doesn't tend to do ministry on his own. You're going to notice that ministry with Paul is team-based. He loves this guy, Timothy. He refers to Timothy as his co-laborer in Christ. Have you ever built a wall or done a project with someone? And you had someone who helped you? That's your co-laborer. That's who Timothy is to Paul. Okay, so we're doing well. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother, Timothy. We just did one verse, and I've taken like seven minutes. Okay, let's do one more verse, because it's going to give us the backdrop for the entire book, for our entire series. We are writing to God's holy people. Okay, the original text is not written in English. Is this news for anybody? 
So the Bible is not originally written in English. Remember how I said we have a cultural lens? We look at it and we think, oh, they're talking about America in 2023, and I'm going to make nachos later, and I'm going to have a great Sunday afternoon. So the reality is that the Bible is in a different culture, a different context, and even a different language. The language that it's written in is Greek in the New Testament. So the original Greek word says something on here. For holy people, it's more close to the word saints. Have you ever heard the word saints? I'm not talking about the football team, right? So in some traditions, saints are certain people who have been gifted by God and do an amazing special thing for God, and then they're listed in a record. Are you familiar with this? So in New England, this is a big thing. If you move away from some of that tradition and you simply do where we are, what we understand of saints is if you love Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you are a saint. So I'm looking at saints in this room. If you have a wonderful Christian relative who is dead and gone, that's a saint. If you have a child who you're raising to love Jesus, that is a saint. Are you with me? So Paul is referring to the saints at this specific church, and he's not talking about a, just a few couple people. He's saying, hey, all believers have this opportunity. Okay, in where? The city of Colossae. I want to throw up a map. Because sometimes when we read the Bible and it talks about these names, has anyone ever been to Colossae? Okay. So that's why a map is helpful. So let's look up here. If you look on the left side of your map, you're going to see modern-day Italy, and there's Rome. Okay? He's not writing to Rome. Then you're going to see modern-day Greece and North Macedonia above it. Then over here we've got this big area. Do you know what it's called? Turkey. Okay? Modern-day Turkey. You with me? They sometimes also call it Asia Minor. Paul is writing to a mid-sized town, Colossae, and there's a church there. What we're going to find is it's about the size of Plymouth, probably. It's not a huge urban center. It's a mid-sized town, and it's always under the threat of earthquakes. That's the big thing. If you live in California, what are you worried about? Earthquakes. If you live in Kansas, what are you worried about? Tornadoes. If you, now, here's the, here's the controversial one. If you live in New England, what are you worried about? So I just heard three answers. I heard blizzards, I heard hurricanes, and I heard nor'easters. And so that is what the life of a New Englander was. That is our kind of fears. They were worried about earthquakes. In fact, a couple years after this letter is written, you know what happens to Colossae? It's destroyed by an earthquake. The letter lives on even though the place does not. Okay, we're doing great. It's also under Roman occupation, and we'll talk about that later in our series. Okay, then he's writing to faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's something clear to know about the audience. It's probably eight to ten families. There's probably more people sitting in this room than he's writing to. This is not some mega church. It's not some huge, massive place. This is a group of faithful people trying to follow Jesus under what? Under pressure. Under pressure from culture and under internal pressures to maybe be things like more legalistic. And so that takes us to our final part. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. 
very important for you to see that Paul begins this letter. Paul is attributed to writing 13 of the letters in the New Testament. And you're going to notice that in almost all of them, it starts with this phrase, grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is God reaching down and doing something. What is peace? Peace is the finished, settled state of that. Grace and peace together equals the gospel. Grace separate from peace means the news of Jesus that I don't receive. Peace separate from grace is a temporary peace that I feel in my life. Maybe I eat a burger and I feel a temporary sense of peace because I'm no longer really hungry. It goes away. It's the grace and peace together that's central, and that's what we're going to see. So there's where we are. There is kind of our introduction to the entire book in two verses. And now, in good teaching fashion, I want us to have someone read it. So I'm going to put a slide up on screen. Our reader for today is Faith Community Church. Faith Community Church has followed Jesus for generations, grows in relationships, and serves together. And we will see God transform Plymouth and the South Shore. Amen? And so we're going to read these first two verses together. Then we're going to ask a question, what's the best way to hold a steering wheel? Let's read together. Here we go. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Now we know where we are. Now we know who's writing. Now we can get started. So, as we go for these next couple months, we need to have a big idea. We've got a big idea for our series, and we've got a big idea for today. Jesus, please be the center. Of what? Of my life. Of our church. Of my family. Of my marriage. Of my prayer life. Etc., etc., etc. Now, the question is, okay... What's the best way to do that? And I was, this past week, thinking about this, and I was driving to, in good Cushing fashion, to Starbucks. And I was driving to Starbucks. Yep, uh, sorry. I actually met someone at Dunkin' Donuts um, a couple weeks ago, and I realized it was my first time ever drinking a Dunkin' Donuts coffee in my life. That's another sermon. But here's the thing. So I was going to Starbucks, and I was looking at the steering wheel, and I realized that the steering wheel and how I hold it is kind of a really good way to understand how I live in my faith life. What's the best way to hold the steering wheel? You're going to see that in this letter to Colossians, to the church at Colossae, that Paul is going to show them to keep Jesus as the center of their lives, of their church, no matter the cultural pressures, no matter the internal pressures. And so we're going to look at three different ways you can hold the steering wheel. Two of them bad, one of them good. Here's option number one for holding the steering wheel. Removing my hands from the wheel. It's, you laugh, but we do remove our hands from the wheel, right? Because we've got to change our music. Or you got a crying kid in the back, so you got to hand them a granola bar. Or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all sorts of pressures externally that make us take our hands off the wheel. So removing my hands from the wheel is kind of compromising to cultural pressure. You with me? Think about it. There's my neighbor is going by me, so I take my hands off the wheel, I roll down my window, I talk, 
and now I'm distracted. My phone buzzes, and even though it's illegal to be on my phone in Massachusetts, I am anyways, right? Hopefully not. But I'm looking at a pressure, and I'm responding to it, and I'm taking my hands off the wheel, and I'm compromising from my safe driving. So Paul writes to a church facing cultural pressure, actually four of them. And these are really helpful because these still exist in a lot of ways today. Maybe not the earthquake gods, but the other ones do. Let me show you. So you're going to notice as we go through this series, there's a pressure of some ideas of secular humanism, basically just life ways of thinking that are not tied to Jesus. Paul says it like this. He says, empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Then another factor that they've got to deal with is secular spirituality. Sometimes there's things that are spiritual but have nothing to do with Jesus. And look at what the Colossian church faces, insisting on the worship of angels. Then they do have a fear of earthquake gods. Let me explain this. So you're eight to ten families in a church in Colossae, and you love Jesus, and you want to serve him, and you want to grow your church, and you want to raise your families the right way. Amen? So they love the Lord, and they have children who love the Lord too. But there's earthquakes, and there's all these other people who don't love Jesus, and they're all afraid of the earthquake gods, and they're worried that if everybody doesn't bow down to the earthquake gods and give them their proper sacrifice, that the earthquake is going to destroy the city. So you, as your person in Colossae, loving Jesus, trying to serve him, the challenge is you've got a group of people who despise what you're doing because they think you're going to tick off the earthquake god. Does this kind of sound familiar with some of the times of what it means to be a Christian in our world? Okay. And then other nations. There's all these other practices. You're going to see whether it's the imperial cult, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to see that there is this pressure. Because culture says that I need to compromise to life rather than trusting Jesus. So here's my kind of question for you. What cultural pressures have a large impact on your life? Think about them. Start to think, okay. Uh, and, and again, we're going to do action steps at the end of this sermon. This may be your action step today. Maybe all you're going to want to do this afternoon is write down pressures that are not Jesus, they're not the gospel, they're other things, things like busyness, things like, oh, I'll show you comfort. There's all sorts of different things. And maybe your homework today for this week is to write them down and to pray about them for a week. God may be asking you to do that really helpful thing to do. I've started noticing billboards. So I was really trying to, because we're talking about what's the right way to hold the steering wheel, I was trying to be really mindful of not being on my phone in the car, not being on the radio, not doing all these other things. So I've got two hands safely on the wheel, moving around flexibly. I've started noticing billboards. Let me tell you two that are relatively close to here, and they show some cultural pressures we deal with. Here's billboard number one. Become a morning person. Freak everyone out. Now, you can laugh. But the challenge with that is it's giving a message of, hey, culture says I need to be more busy. And following Jesus, yes, we want to be active, but following Jesus isn't about stressing myself out and being more busy and getting more upset and frustrated and flustered. It's taking an active role in following Jesus, but it's not just being busy. 
Here's another one, and I, I, I'm going to tell you what this one's from. It says, find your zen. And we're going to stay on the previous slide. It says, find your zen, and this is from a dispensary. And what it's ultimately saying is that, hey, you need to be more comfortable. That's a cultural pressure. And so I invite you, what cultural pressures have a large impact on your life, and what is God asking you to do next? So there's the first way we can deal with the steering wheel. Can we all agree we shouldn't take our hands off the wheel? When my father was going through seminary, he talks about how he used to drive about a half an hour and try to read Greek and Hebrew during his drive. He would take his hands off the wheel and drive with his knees. Sometimes we want to drive with our knees because we think everything else is more important in our spiritual life, but we just need to be dealing with driving our car. So then we can compensate. We can have option number two, gripping on with two hands for dear life. That's kind of an overcompensation. If I take my hands off, not helpful. If I grip on 10 and 2, right? Everybody do 10 and 2 with me for a moment and grab. Ready? What's the problem with that? Put them back up and try to do a hairpin turn. Everybody, I want to see your arms go up. Try to do a hairpin turn with not letting go. Can you do a hairpin turn with your car? You can't. Because the steering wheel isn't designed to do that. When we give in to religious legalism, we take something and we use it not the way it was designed. 10 and 2 is a great idea as a general practice, but when I insist on it at all costs, I'm driving unsafe. Do we agree? Now, I want to show you what was going on. Paul writes to a group of people dealing with two major types of legalism. Should we define legalism? What is legalism? We'll stay on the previous side. So Paul is dealing with two types of legalism. So what is, he, what is he dealing with? We've got, on one hand, we've got this idea where we see here, the rules are only shadows of the reality left to come. You're going to see that he deals with legalism and asceticism. Now, if I've lost you with words like asceticism, here's what you need to know. As Paul's writing to Colossians, what he shows is that I have a choice. I can either try to grab new rules or I can grab new life in Jesus. You can't have both. Think about it for a moment. If I, as a Christian, want to follow Jesus, what does that mean? There's some practices in my life that start to become part of it, like praying. But if I make praying the number one, I'm actually pushing Jesus out. If I just say, hey, I'm praying because I'm responsible to pray for 30 minutes a day, I'm not now doing it out of a love for Jesus and for desire to pray to God and to see his purposes on my family, on the community. What I'm doing is I'm simply saying, hey, I'm grabbing tight at all costs and I'm making something else the most important. Now, I had this happen in my life, and I'm going to give you a silly example from when I was a little kid. I struggled to read. Did anyone struggle learning to read? You know, some of, the, some of the best readers actually struggled to read. So if you know a young person, a child, struggling to read right now, just remember that's not necessarily tied to any future outcome. I really struggled to, lead, to read, and my parents wanted me to learn how to read and to love reading. 
And so what they did is they established a system called book credits. What were book credits? Essentially, I lived, grew up in the 90s, and books were cheap back then. Remember when you could buy a book for $4.99 at a bookstore? Now you can't buy a bookmark for $4.99 at the bookstore. And the bookstore doesn't exist. But you got to bear with me. This is, wow, like 25 years ago. So here's what's going on. Every time I read a book, so I read Henry and Mudge or Frog and Toad, and I'm all excited, and I get a book credit. And now I can get one book that's $5 or less. And if there's a more expensive book, like an $8 book, I can use two book credits to buy it. Are you with me? So what is the point of this? The point of this is to get me to love reading and learn to read and do it well, yes? So do you see the original design? So of course I game the system, and what do I do? Next thing my parents know, I'm amassing book credits, and I have like 45 book credits, and I walk into the store with them, and I say, Mom and Dad, guess what? You're getting me my book, and it's $275, and look, I've showed you that all these book credits are going to equal that. And they shut down the book credit system. Because when we take things outside of their intended design and we stop acting in good faith and we don't put a love for reading as the goal but trying to manipulate my parents, now we've lost the book credit system in our faith lives in the same way. If I'm trying to game the system, let me give you an example. It's good to pray with my children. If I'm praying with my children because I love Jesus and I want them to love Jesus, I'm good. If I pray with my children because I want to manipulate them or I've read some Harvard study that says it's a good idea, then I'm trying to game the system and I'm being legalistic. And then I'm gripping on with two hands for dear life on my steering wheel. So here's my question for you. When are the times you are most prone to becoming legalistic? Think about those. For each of us, we're going to be a little different. You may be someone in your faith life who does really well personally, but then in your marriage, you just can't translate your love for Jesus into your marriage. Maybe you're someone who your faith life and your marriage goes really well, but you've got adult children who just, they're, you just, they're knuckleheads, and it's just so frustrating. And so it's hard to translate, and I become legalistic with my adult children or with my attitude towards my adult children. And so really the central thing that Paul's going to ask, this is Paul's question paraphrase, not David's, are you embracing new rules or new life in Jesus? And think about that. There's times in every single one of our lives where we're embracing new rules. This, 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 and this, and this is not the gospel. It's rules. New life in Jesus is saying... I confess my sin, I surrender to God, and I have faith. And now everything else comes after that. Obedience comes after that. Joyful obedience, hopefully not fearful obedience, right? Because that's the challenge. If I'm just looking and saying, oh, I just, I'm so afraid of messing up, I'm so afraid of getting it wrong, that's not really God's best for me. Those are new rules, not new life in Jesus. So those are the two ways. So we don't want to take our hands off the wheel, and we don't want to grip on tight for dear life. Here's what we want to do. Way number three, and this is what Paul's going to show you how to do these next two months. Here's option number three, utilizing the steering wheel properly. What does that mean? That means there's times where you're going to do 10 and 2. That means there's times where you're going to hold one hand and you're going to hand the granola bar to your child and you're still going to be safely driving the car. In my life, 
when I center around Jesus, and I understand that, yes, I have external pressures, and yes, I have internal desires to become more legalistic. Ultimately, if I'm saying, God, you're calling me to love you and to love my neighbors, to pray for people, to live out through joy, and then life's going to start making sense. That's using the steering wheel properly. Let me make it even simpler. If your life starts to look weird, you might have a problem. Let me show you what I mean. Everybody go to holding your steering wheel for a moment. Let me see steering wheels. All right, take your hands off and try to drive with your knees. That's weird, okay? If, if you see someone driving like that this afternoon, please remember in your head, my pastor says that's weird. Then pray for them. Dear Lord, please keep that person safe. That's weird. Amen. Now, put your hands on your steering wheel again. Now hold 10 and 2, gripping on for dear life at all costs. Now try to turn your car. That's weird, okay? That's weird. If your life starts to just be a case of that's weird, I'm not going to say 100 times out of 100 it's a problem, but a lot of times if you're just kind of being arbitrary and either really just like capitulating to culture and you, nobody can see Jesus in your life, that's kind of weird. And if you're just really legalistically holding on and being like, I only do this thing on this day and this on this day, that might be weird too. Life is a little more complex than that. So I want to show you, and I, at the cost of not getting legalistic, I want to show you an example of a biblical balance from the book of Colossians. Please do not take a picture of this and do this as a checklist. That would be legalism. This is Paul's example this is Paul's example of how to have a balance. So look in your life and say, am I seeing behaviors like these as natural parts of my life? If so, wonderful. That's having my hands appropriately on the steering wheel. Sometimes I hold on two hands. Sometimes I do hand over hand to turn the car. Sometimes I take one hand off to hand the granola bar to my daughter. Life is good. So it starts to look like this. Believing and standing in truth. Praying alertly and thankfully. You're going to see this is a big part of Paul's letter to the Colossians. N.T. Wright says that there's two things we want to do for God. We want to be, have thanksgiving and thanks living. We'll get into that later in the series. Living wisely among non-believers. I want to stop on this one. So living wisely on non-believers means the following. There's certain things that are helpful and not helpful for our non-Christian friends when we're with them. First of all, I don't want you this afternoon to go to your non-Christian friend and say, hi, you're a non-believer, I have boundaries with you. Please don't do that. That's legalistic, okay? That's the hand really rigidly on the steering wheel. There's certain things that are helpful to ask for advice from our non-Christian friends and certain things not. Tennis. If you have a non-Christian friend who knows tennis, please get their help and become a better tennis player. The book of Romans. If you have a non-Christian friend, don't ask their opinion on the book of Romans. It will not be helpful. Playing the piano. If you have a non-Christian friend, they can probably help you become a better pianist. Praying. Please don't ask your non-Christian friend how to do prayer because you're going to probably get some of the secular spirituality and various things, and it's just not helpful. Live wisely among non-believers and just say, Lord, you're leading me and guiding me in every moment. Thank you for the opportunity. Make the most of opportunities and speak graciously. So, where is Jesus located in your life today? We've done all sorts of stuff with steering wheels, but to throw this slide up, where is Jesus located in your life today?
Is Jesus at the very center? Are you saying, wow, I came here to church and I really have a devotion to Jesus. I love the way that my life looks right now. And I really feel like I can share the balance that I have in my life with others. If so, I'm going to give you a high five. Here's your high five. Now go share it with people. Now you got an opportunity. Go tell people about Jesus. Bring people to church. Bring people to a small group. Get a small group going. That's awesome. If, you, if you're feeling like, wow, I got Jesus at the center of my life today. That's so awesome. Cool. So glad you're here on the team. Okay, let's do cool stuff for Jesus with that. If you're saying, hmm, Jesus is in my life, not necessarily at the center. What needs to change? Is it uh, external cultural pressure? Is it internal legalism? Because here's going to be where we're going for the next couple months. Jesus, be the center of my life today in every way. Let's say this together. Jesus, be the center every day in every way. We're going to look at outward life, inward life, church life, thinking, actions, family life, and prayer. What does that encompass? All of life. All of life. And so, here's the thing. Jesus be the center. We're going to have two implications for today. And we always have an opportunity. There's going to be a prayer team that will come up in a moment. But I want you to think in advance. Number one, maybe I just need to realize that I don't need to compromise the culture. Maybe I'm saying there's a lot of factors in my life and a lot of external forces, and they're crushing down on me, and I'm feeling crushed. And I'm feeling like Atlas. Do you remember that guy, Atlas, if you like mythology, where you got the weight of the world on your shoulders? Maybe I'm feeling crushed by the weight of the world. Maybe simply I need to name out the pressures in my life and pray about them for a week. And then come back next week and let's talk about what to do next. Maybe it's I'm giving into some legalistic tendencies. And maybe I simply need to start letting go a little bit and saying, wow, prayer is about Jesus, not about 15 minutes. Reading the Bible is about learning from God's Word and applying it to my life, not about having to get through this amount of Scripture in a day. And so I invite you, as our prayer team comes down, we're going to keep our prayer point really simple, and we'll throw our prayer point up, and we're going to sing a song that literally is a prayer, Jesus be the center, from my college days. This is a way back song. Does something have too much influence in your life? If so, we'd love to pray for you. Let's stand. Let's sing this prayer together. I won't pray for you. We'll pray together. And come down. Come forward. If something has too much influence in your life and you want to just start handing it over to God, let's do that work together. Let's, let's join as we sing. <laughs>